Hi. Happy Easter. I like Easter. For Easter, going to look at John chapter 20. And typically we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter here at the church, but I'm just going to read this as a backdrop to more of a topical sermon. Ooh. Ooh. But I will use a lot of scripture for this, so don't worry. You'll get your fill. So it's just John chapter 20. I'm just going to read the first 22 verses to give us this Easter story. And while you're turning to that, let me pray for us. Jesus, your victory over the grave is what has bridged a relationship between us sinners, transgressors, to a holy God. And we're so thankful for that. Thank you for that victory over the grave, that victory over death, that in that victory, Lord, you are able to overcome anything. And so, Lord, for those here who are in need of your presence, of your touch, of your words, I pray that you would meet them where they're at. Some are in need of physical healing. Some relationships are broken and they need healing. God, there's just some things that are going on in people's lives that are so varied and numerous here that your presence is so needed for that, that a resurrection in their life is so needed. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give them hope, peace, comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. As she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, Where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Easter has been very special in my life. And I recall that as I was serving at my church in Southern California and going through pastoral school and all these things that I was doing while I was growing up in Southern California, while I was serving down there, we would have these sunrise services and it would be at the college stadium nearby and it was just packed out. You know, it's just thousands of people. And in my various roles serving at that service, we were to report at the stadium the night before, like at 6 p.m., so that we could start setting everything up, you know, like the staging and the sound and all that stuff and the signage. And then after we were done with that, we were told to come back at 3 in the morning to finish up the decorating, like putting up Easter lilies and all this kind of stuff, right? So one year, I was head of security. (laughs) Exactly. I was a ninja. And so the security team has to stay all night. You have to stay up all night monitoring stuff because the sound equipment we have up there is pretty expensive. So you have to stay there all night. And that was actually pretty fun because we would all mess around with one another. And every year, there was this Mexican brother who would cook up menudo for all of us. You know, there's hundreds of us serving this thing. And anybody not know what menudo is? You know chicken soup for the soul? This is it. Mexican style, right? This is it. I've never seen a pot this big in my life. I could fit in it. And so we were so thankful on those really cold evenings and mornings because, you know, it's pretty frigid out there. And so it it was just such a great experience to be with so many Christian brothers and sisters serving one another and celebrating with one another the, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But at the first Easter, this Easter that we read in John, That was a different sunrise service. That wasn't so fun playing games with all the security people with two-way walkie-talkies and having a big bowl of menudo that I could fit into. No Easter lilies. Definitely high security back then, though, because the Roman guards were placed there. So definitely high security. And there were people that were up really early to meet Jesus that morning. And one such person was Mary Magdalene, who we find in verse 1, and that John wrote that she was there really early while it was still dark. And so the feelings and the emotions they experienced were very different from the ones that we experience this morning, today, or any time in the future. Today, we enter Easter really hopeful and joyful, knowing what happened 2,000 years ago happened and that we can celebrate with that. But back in this first Easter, it wasn't like that. This was a time of grief. This was a time of bereavement. And at no Easter after that will there be such an experience as the ones that they experienced back then. We enter Easter every year since that Easter knowing the stone is rolled away, knowing Jesus has risen. But at that very first Easter, there was some uncertainty about how they were even going to get to Jesus. Mark chapter 16, verse 3 They were saying to one another, the the women, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And that was never to be a concern for Christians ever again after that first Easter. Now something that has been consistent since that first Easter is this. Unbelief. Unbelief. In Luke's biography, 
Luke recorded that the apostles received this account from the woman at the tomb as an idle tale. An idle tale. And they did not believe them. Luke chapter 24, verse 11. Now another word for an idle tale is this. Nonsense. Nonsense. And this is how many people receive the resurrection today. This is how many people receive Easter today. As an idle tale, as nonsense with unbelief. And if you find yourself highly skeptical of the claim of the resurrection of Jesus this morning, you're actually in really, really, really good company. Because you'd be in the same company as the first disciples. Because they didn't believe. They thought Jesus' resurrection was total nonsense. They told Mary, this is an idle tale. What's this woman talking about? She's nuts. And in fact, it's recorded in this in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They were really fearful. It wasn't like they were all excited. Oh yeah, he died, and then three days later he's going to raise again. I'm so excited. I'm, I can't wait. I can't wait. These guys locked themselves in. They have a lock-in. And they hide. They're not out ready to celebrate Jesus rising from the dead on the third day. And when Mary told them Jesus resurrected, that he had risen, they didn't believe her. They knew Jesus died on Friday. They knew how he died. And there was no way that they were going to be convinced that he was raised from the dead because they saw that bloody guy there who was beaten and tortured and died on the cross and buried Joseph of Arimathea, puts him in this tomb. There's no way that that guy can rise from the dead. I bring this up because... Easter has been celebrated much differently than the first one. At the first Easter, most of Jesus' disciples weren't so hopeful. They weren't so joyful. His most dedicated followers were hiding. Fearful. And when they heard that he resurrected, even though he said he was going to, they still didn't believe it. Now some argue that the Gospels were written inaccurately and they were manipulated by the authors as to convince people to follow Jesus. And I think that's just really silly. Why would the Gospel writers want to write a false biography of Jesus? Because if He didn't raise from the dead, wouldn't they just move on with their lives? They were hiding. They were fearful. Why would they want to just imagine something and write up some story? And if for some reason they did choose to believe in a lie, why would they paint themselves in such a bad light? Seriously, I mean, if I was writing some story, I'd be like, I'm the hero, and I never doubted. I was always there, and I stood up to those Roman guys, and I went to the tomb and said, he's rising in three days, and I will show you. I'm just going to stand here. I would kind of embellish something. But to tell the world that we were scared and we actually locked ourselves in because we were scared of these Jews. And in fact, Mary came and told us that Jesus rose, but we even told her she was crazy. We told her that it was an idle tale and go away. And I wouldn't have included that, you know, I, I was really hurtful towards Jesus. I deserted him when we were having this awesome meal and then he told some of the guys to go pray with them. And, and we went down to the olive trees and we we're hanging out. And then so when the guys came, we took off. We left them. I wouldn't include any of that. I would have included the, 
I chopped off his ear. Like, I would have done that sort of stuff. But that's the problem that the disciples had. You know, they had all these faults and stuff, but the Bible is just so honest and it's so true and it's just presenting, like, what really, really happened? This is what really happened. Why would the leaders of the early Christian church allow themselves to be painted in such a negative way? Unless it's just true. That's just what happened. And we hear about how important it is to keep an open mind, right? People out there are always saying, oh, keep an open mind, keep an open mind. Keep... And schools and businesses teach this, you know, keep an open mind. But when it comes to Jesus, sometimes people don't have an open mind. They've kind of already made their decision. They've kind of already have their agenda set. And some people have already made their decision without looking into the story and the claims made by the gospel. To gain understanding of the scriptures is so important to help you come to a decision to believe or not to believe. And that was one of the problems the disciples had in John chapter 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now when did this understanding finally click in for them? I think it happened in verses 19 through 22. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This was when I think the transition from grief, sadness, fear, despair, unbelief, and darkness drastically changed to joy, hope, gladness, peace, belief, and understanding. This is what happened when they encountered Jesus. When Jesus came and stood among them and declared to them, peace be with you. And when Jesus showed him his hands and his eyes, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. My eldest daughter asked what verse she should memorize today in the morning. She was like, Dad, uh, it's Easter. What verse should I memorize today? What verse? And I was like, uh, John chapter 20, verse 20. They were glad when they saw the Lord. Because that's what I want for her. I want for her to see him, right? To, to experience, to be in his presence. And so that was her memory verse today, this morning. Go quiz her on it. Now, Luke's biographical account gives us a little bit more detail. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 45. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. I love that Jesus asked for something to eat. Why did he do that? To prove that he wasn't some spirit. He's like, ooh. To prove that it's not what he is. That it was him in the flesh. That it was him. For them to see him and touch him because a spirit does not have 
flesh and bones. And to put an exclamation point on the proof that it was him. You guys have any sushi? I'm hungry. Right? Jesus wanted to prove to them once and for all that all the scriptures are true and for them to understand those scriptures. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus was beat up so badly. They took his limp body off of the cross. He was dead, flatlined, no heartbeat, no physical brain activity. He is dead. And when he arose from the dead, he was back at full health. It's like a video game, right? You just eat a and you're like back at full health again. Fully functional. Now think about this. When you're sick, and unfortunately I've been to hospice care and things like this, when people are dying, what's the first thing to go? Their appetite. They don't eat anymore. It's for any animal. When my sister had to put her dog down, they said, is he eating? And like, no. It's like, yeah, it's time. Appetite is one of the first things to go when you are dying or when you are really sick. And here, Jesus wanted to eat. He had his appetite. He was back. Everything about him was fine. Everything about him was working. No rehab, no physical therapy, no meds, no nothing. Perfectly fine. He could be seen, he could be touched. And to top it all off, I'm ready to eat. I can eat. And they disbelieved for joy and were marveling, not because it was some dream or that they were having some vision. It was a tangible event that happened before their very eyes and their flesh. And it wasn't just some spiritual or emotional thing that was happening. Jesus was physically right in front of them. He physically rose from the dead. And after they recognized Jesus in their flesh, their lives would never be the same because they experienced firsthand being with the risen Savior, Jesus. And from that point, they believed and they lived and they died in accordance to a risen Savior, Jesus. Now, if you were there, if you were there, if I was there, it would be so hard for us to disbelieve, wouldn't it? How could you? How could you? You'd be nuts. And what happened over 2,000 years ago is what happened whether it was the disciples who were first-hand witnesses or it is us 2,000 years removed. It's the same story. It's the same gospel. It's the same historical event that happened. So would those who don't believe be considered crazy for their disbelief today? I think there's a good possibility for that. I think we're crazy anyway. But especially since the story is right before us to check on the facts and to test its validity. For example, in John chapter 20, verses 5 through 7, it reads this And stooping to look in, he, John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Take a closer look at verses 6 and 7. Peter saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The gospel writer is just giving us fodder to say that that's false. He's giving us all these details. Now, 
Why is this detail in there? Because it happened. And also to, to think, who would take the time to unwrap dead Jesus from all the ointments and spices and cloths that he was wrapped in and then fold the face cloth to be put in a place by itself to take the time to do all of that? You recall the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Starting in verse 43, when he had said these things, Jesus, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. See, the wrapping of the cloths and things, this was customary of a burial. The dead would be bound up in spices and ointments by cloths. If Jesus' body was taken by anybody, his followers, the Jews, the Romans, anybody. Why would the linen cloths lie there by themselves in his tomb with the face cloth folded up in a place by itself? It is proof that Jesus rose from the grave on his terms. No one went in there and took his body. The Romans were posted there to guard the tomb. They had enough of the unrest that was happening because of all this stuff that Jesus kind of was ruffling up. And if the Jews took Jesus... Then when the Christians spoke about Jesus' resurrection, all they'd have to do is present Jesus' body. Here it is. We took it. And if Jesus' followers took it, you think they'd be courageous enough and bold enough to change the world knowing that they had a dead Jesus? What's that movie? Where they, what's it, what about Bob? That movie, Bernie. It'd be like, can you imagine? I mean, yeah, victorious Jesus. <laughs> Come on. Right? They, they didn't believe when Mary told them. They were locked in a room and they were fearful. Like, like they were going to go battle the Roman guards now. They couldn't even stand up to guys in the dark. I mean, come on. They thought it was an idle tale. Not even all of the people who were there during this whole event believed it. And they were there. They still disbelieved. And, and the world is full of unbelievers. Back at the first Easter, people didn't believe even though the evidence was so compelling. They're still unbelievers back then. And to think that you can't believe now, I mean, they were unbelievers back then. And it just happened right there. And the evidence today is really compelling, yet people don't believe today. How does one explain the existence of Christianity if there is no resurrection? Who would follow a Jesus if he just died? How, how does one explain the New Testament if there's no resurrection? Who would bother writing about him, let alone follow him, if he was dead? If there was no resurrection, none of us would be here today. Think about this. Billions of people throughout a couple of millennium wouldn't bother celebrating Easter if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Billions, if you're considering the past 2,000 years, right? But there are still skeptics, and that's to be expected. Even Jesus' own disciple, Thomas, doubted. He said in John chapter 20, verse 25, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. And so Jesus showed up eight days later, and Jesus told Thomas in verse 27, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And perhaps some of you are like Thomas. You need something similar to what Thomas needed as proof. And I encourage you to talk to God about that.
to talk to Jesus about that. Jesus said to Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Or maybe there is someone here who thinks they're just unworthy of a relationship with Jesus because your life does not reflect the character and integrity of Jesus. And maybe your actions have betrayed him or your actions have deserted him, denied him, and you feel you're not worthy to him to have a relationship with him. You're in good company. Peter was like that. Maybe you feel your past is just too dark for Jesus, that there's no way Jesus can forgive me of, of those things. I mean, this is just, my stuff is just too messed up. And there's no way that you can be accepted or forgiven or loved. Well, you need to look at Mary Magdalene who had this really checkered past, who, who once had seven demons before Jesus casted them out of her. Yet the news of Jesus' resurrection was first revealed to who? Mary. And who did Jesus specifically say to go after? Peter. And who did he show up for right there to say, hey, put your hand here, touch your, come here? Thomas. I mean, he had all these people that he came specifically for. And so Jesus came to reconcile a relationship between you and God, wherever you're at, wherever you're at, to bridge the gap for those who are so far from a holy God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The question for you this morning is, have you accepted that reconciliation? And it's more than just accepting the historical fact that there was a man named Jesus who was an awesome teacher and a good prophet and healed a lot of people and did all this stuff. Do you believe that he reconciled you to God? Have you received Jesus' gift to you in that he's the only one who could reconcile you to a holy God? Do you trust him for that reconciliation? That's why he died and rose from the dead. It wasn't for all this other stuff that he did. It was for you so that your debt of sin was paid by him before a God of justice. Jesus died and rose from the dead so that you and I could have a right relationship with God. And as we grow in our right relationship with God, we come to realize it's life-changing. And it's not easy. And for some of us who've been Christians for a while, we can attest that the Christian life is not easy. There are some really challenging times in it, but it's wonderful. And it's just like any other worthwhile relationship that we have. There are challenges in there, but they're wonderful. And at times, people question the relationship that you have with Jesus, thinking, man, you're crazy. Easter's about Easter bunnies and going to find jelly beans and eggs and wearing colorful clothing. You believe that this guy reconciled you to a holy God? You're nuts! It's an idle tale to them just like it was at the first Easter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, who did God use to write this letter to the Corinthians that I've quoted from a couple times now? He used a guy named Paul. Now, who was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee who was hell-bent at putting an end to Christianity. 
He imprisoned people. He condoned stoning. He beat people up. He did whatever he could to stomp out Christianity. And what happened to Paul? He met the resurrected Jesus. That's what happened to him. The story's in Acts chapter 26. Paul was making this defense before King Agrippa and Governor Festus against all the accusations that the Jews were bringing against him. And so Paul begged Agrippa to listen to him patiently. So that's what I'm going to do for you too, is I'm going to ask for you to patiently listen to what Paul said to Agrippa, starting in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and to turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. Paul was brilliant. Trained in Jerusalem, trained by Gamaliel, highly intelligent person who would in no way have his life changed because of hearsay. 
No way. This guy's a Pharisee of Pharisee. This is an attorney. He's not going to just have his life changed because he had some little flutters or an emotional movement or, you know. He needs proof. Prove it. Give me evidence. His life was changed because of truth, of rationale, of reason. His life was changed based on historical, factual events such as the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Facts that happened. He's not going to just change off of hearsay. Events that didn't happen in secret. None of those things happened in secret. Do you understand this? This is not just some made-up thing. Oh, we're going to write this thing, put it in a bottle, and somebody will open it up a hundred years later and say, oh, yes, let's believe this. It's all stuff that happened in the open. His death. His resurrection, His ascension, it all happened out in public. Many people saw these things. You can dig up and examine and investigate all of this stuff and many witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. It was a public event. Anyone could be there. There's probably hundreds of people. There's probably, I'm probably exaggerating, millions of people there because it's during Passover. It's so crowded, you can't get any more crowded during that time. So many people and it's a public death. So many people saw his death. So many people witnessed his resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, Paul wrote, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul is saying hundreds have seen Jesus, and at the time he wrote that letter, you can still go talk to those guys. They're still alive. Go, go talk to them. Eyewitnesses. Hundreds witnessed. Many people saw Jesus' ascension. It's a public thing. How does anyone go about accepting historical facts? When you do your studies, how do you know World War II happened? You weren't there. How do you know? You study these things. You see if the evidence matches up. And you see if things are consistent. Not just from one's perspective, but from all these other different perspectives. It's the same thing with the resurrection. It's the same thing with the Bible. How do you know it's a historical event? You read stuff. And you start comparing and contrasting to see if there are consistencies or inconsistencies. Flavius Josephus was not a Christian. He's a Jew. He wrote a ton of historical things that match up perfectly with the Bible. There's a bunch of historians back then that are writing things that match up with the Bible. So it's the same when investigating Jesus' resurrection. And this is just too big to ignore, but people do ignore this. They ignore the resurrection. People ignore important things all the time, don't they? You're thinking, how can people ignore this? Everlasting life and eternity where you're going to spend, where your soul's going to be. How can anyone ignore this? We ignore important things all the time. All the time. How many of you guys are guilty of ignoring your family? How many of you are guilty of ignoring your health? And it's important. But we ignore important things all the time. So it's not due to insignificance or value that we're ignoring the resurrection. We ignore stuff like that all the time. Whatever the reasons as to why this bold claim of Jesus' resurrection isn't looked into until it's proven true or false is varied and it's plentiful by people. But the fact is, is that it is true, it is rational, and it is reasonable nonetheless. No matter how we slice it, it is. And a group of dejected followers of Jesus weren't transformed until they encountered the resurrected Jesus. And when they changed the world, living and dying for Jesus, 
The grace of Jesus who lived, died, and resurrected for us, He sought them out when they deserted Him. He seeks you. He loves you despite your disinterest, your disobedience, your disbelief, your lack of wanting a relationship. You're just kind of wanting the cultural aspect of things. He still wants a relationship. He loves you even when you don't love Him. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, the question I have for you is, what's holding you back? And if you've drifted away from Jesus, what's preventing you from drawing near to Him? What He wants is to make your relationship with Him and others good and right. Right? I mean, is that kind of what Christianity boils down to? He wants to make your relationship with God good and right. And He wants to make your relationship with others, people around you, good and right. What's wrong with that? Why is there such an opposition towards Jesus who wants that for you? I don't get it. Why is there such vitriol and spite all this stuff coming out, like there's this atheist convention or something going on right now talking about, why would you waste time like that? Why wouldn't you go like solve world hunger or something? Like, why are you meeting about people that believe in God? I, it just baffles my mind. God can't love you any more than He already does. No matter what you do or don't do, no matter how you're behaving or not behaving, He can't love you anymore. You're saturated with God's love. Here's another thing. God can't accept you any more than who you are. You are fully accepted. That's what grace is. Right? That's what grace is. Grace is knowing you're fully accepted by God. What's wrong with that? What's holding you back from believing that? Let's pray. Jesus... Thank you so much for that reconciliation so that we can have a good and right relationship with God, with you. That we can have a good and right relationship with one another. Not one that is spoiled by our own sin and by our own darkness, but that is pure, that is love, that is gracious. And Father, I ask that you would reveal yourself to those who don't know you here this morning. I pray that their hearts, their minds would be softened towards receiving you. And if there is anyone here this morning that is wanting Jesus in their life, I'd love to pray with you and meet with you. I'm going to be sitting in that front pew here. And for any of you who have kind of backslidden and walked away from Jesus and you're just kind of showing up here because it's Easter. And so it's the church thing to do. And so you show up to church on Easter and Christmas. And so that's why you're here. God wants so much more than that. He wants a relationship with you every day, a dynamic one. If you fall within any of those two places, I'm going to ask you to just take a step of faith and raise your hand so I can pray for you. And then I want to come up to you and ask if you have a Bible, because if you don't, I just want to give you one. Anybody want to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior this morning? Anybody? want to renew that relationship with Jesus this morning. Lastly, we set up a baptismal here in our very classy horse trough. But we want that opportunity for anyone. 
I know this is impromptu and it happens at our church picnics all the time and I'm not trying to force anybody, but I just wanted the opportunity there because sometimes at our church picnics when we announce we're having a baptism, more often than not somebody makes the decision to be baptized. If you want to be baptized, it's there. And it's warm. We just did it this morning. But we've set this up for all the other churches that are meeting after us as well. So it's there for the churches to celebrate in baptism. And if you don't know what it means, we have a class for that before you, you come do that. Lastly, we have communion, and so we're going to continue in our worship. And communion, the cracker there symbolizing Christ's body broken for us. The grape juice there symbolizing Christ's blood shed for us. And as you take that cracker and dip it in the grape juice, we take this in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us and his sacrifice for us. None of it which would matter if he didn't raise from the dead. He would just be another dead person. Right? But we take this in remembrance of what Jesus did for us.